welcome back to another week of episode number 70 of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic Debbie Lynn Elias. Some of you know me as Movie Shark DeBlore. Uh, you can find my reviews and interviews on print, online, on YouTube, um, everything from TCM Film Festival for all, you cla- for all you classic movie fans. All the red carpet interviews are up and out on the various social media. And uh, you can check out some of those. Some really great interviews I'm very, very proud of. Uh, one with Eddie Muller, the Czar of Noir, president of the Film Noir Foundation and a champion preservationist of film. Uh, also, Ben Bradley Jr., one of the investigative reporters uh, that covered the story for the Boston Globe that led to the films, the Academy Award-winning film Spotlight. Uh, also, Carrie Grant's daughter, Jennifer. It only took me five years to get an interview with Jen, and I am beyond thrilled with that. And for all you Carrie Grant fans out there, check it out, because she has some really loving, wonderful things to say about her father. Uh, as much as, in keeping with what all of the Carrie Grant fans really have, have hoped to hear about him and his relationship with his daughter over the years. Um, but we got plenty of other stuff that, uh, on the website, MovieSharkDeBlore.com, out on Examiner and Culver City Observer, British Weekly, uh, Columbus Register, Beacon Times. Go look. You'll find me. But one place you can always find me is right here on Adrenaline Radio and Advice Radio every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for Behind the Lens. And my trusty, my trusty sound engineer, Brian, is here with me again. Good morning. Do we have a, Do we have? Do we have the countdown? Oh, uh, of course we do. Oh, we have the countdown to episode eight. Episode eight. Star. This is Brian. This is Brian's purpose in life is to give us a countdown every week to episode eight of Star Wars. It's going to be released in the theater near you in five hundred and eighty-four days, twelve hours, fifty-seven minutes, and as soon as I'm done with this sentence. Two seconds to go. Oh, and what about Rogue One that we all get to see this year? Yeah, Rogue One is a lot sooner. It's 220 days, 12 hours and and 57 minutes. But the exciting thing about these films is that right now the buzz for Star Wars is being superseded uh, by Captain America's Civil War. Domestic weekend alone, $181.8 million dollars. Globally, the film is just under $700 million. It will be the first film to hit a billion this year. Disney is on a roll between Zootopia, Captain America Civil War, and The Jungle Book. And we're not even six months into the year. Um, so I would suggest now might be a good time for all of you to go buy some Disney stock. Um, just, you know, just putting that out there. But in terms of today's show, this is a, it's, going to be tough to, to, it's going to be tough to top some of the past few weeks that we've had on Behind the Lens. Last week was absolutely phenomenal with the guys from L.A. River, L.A. River Band, L.A. River Music. They're absolutely phenomenal. They will be back later this summer as soon as their album is ready for release. They've been in the studio working on it, and that's almost done. Um, who knows? Nick Crawl's going to write a song for Brian, so that may even be on the album. So that'll be exciting. And then, of course, the filmmaking team from Call of the Void, Dustin uh, Cahia, JT Alexander, and Mojan Aria, 
those guys are just absolutely fabulous, incredible in-studio guests. And uh, yes, Dustin's already said he will come back. Mojan, I think, is off shooting, and I'm sure we can get JT back. And then, of course, the team from Always Worthy, who, oh, heck, they're always worthy of airtime here. Uh, and ironically, as luck would have it, one of those very special actors, Eric Edelstein, who joined us a few weeks ago with Ian Gomez and Amber Lee Colson, Eric is in a film that we're going to talk about today, Stevie D. Joining us at 11.15 will be writer, director, and actor Chris Cordone, and a character actor that I have long loved for decades. The last time I got to sit down and interview with him was in 2005 for a little independent film called Wannabe that also starred this, I don't know, this this actor-turned-director responsible for a film called The Help, uh, Tate Taylor. So, But we've got Spencer Garrett joining us along with Chris at 11.15 to talk about Stevie D. And at 11.30, okay, one of the most interesting documentaries and unusual ones that I have seen in, uh, in the past 28 years as a critic, uh, Fursonas. And it's all about the world of furries. And for those who don't know what furries are, they are people that wear animal, furry animal suits. And we're going to hear all about it from writer, director, documentarian Dominic Rodriguez. This is his first film. And apparently he is also a part-time furry. So, as I said, in all the teasers this weekend, behind, today, behind the lens is fast and furry. But before we get to our crime comedy and our furries, great movie opened up. Uh, and it, it keeps going wider. The Meddler, starring Susan Sarandon. And it's written and directed by Lorene Scafaria. Most of you may remember some of Lorene's prior films. Uh, she was responsible for the script for Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. She wrote and, direct, and directed the, uh, the critically acclaimed Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Um, so it was wonderful to get to sit down with Lorene again about The Meddler. Interesting about The Meddler is our our protagonist is Susan Sarandon, recently widowed, moves to California to meddle in her daughter's life and everybody else's. And I have to say, Lorene is a very brave, brave woman because the whole movie is based on her own mother, Gail. It is done with a loving touch, with a light touch. And it also, as we saw earlier this year with Hello, My Name is Doris and Sally Field, Finally, we're getting some roles for the mature woman in the quote-unquote ARP age. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, you get your ARP card at 50 if you pay your $12 a year. And you get great discounts, including coffee at Denny's, which is really good. But I digress. And, and Brian's in there laughing at me because he knows how much I love getting my discount at Denny's for coffee. Um, but the meddler is it is light. It is fun. It is frothy. It tackles some interesting issues. And there's an incredible love story going on between Susan Sarandon and J.K. Simmons, who is definitely channeling his Sam Elliott. Um, And it is going wider. This was the perfect weekend, Mother's Day weekend, to see the film. If you did, you know, hey, call in and let me know what you thought of it. 800-405-6425. But short of that, I want you to take a listen to excerpts of my exclusive interview with Lorene, starting with 
the character of Marnie itself. I mean, you can't just take your mother and plant her on a screen. It requires some finessing. Marnie is so real. She is so multidimensional. Yeah. I'm the best character you've ever written. Oh, thanks. Well, I mean, it's the one I probably know the best. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it felt weird that the more specific I got with her, the more that people could relate. And I thought that was so interesting because to me, this was just so my, my mother and, um, generous to a fault, you know, is going to go broke, just offering things to people and certainly did offer to pay for a friend's wedding who did not take her up on it. But, but it, you know, she, um, it was the producer of this film actually. Um, but you know, just like those connections that, you know, someone like that can make when they're an open person, you know, Mm -hmm. and very, and, and very generous and giving and certainly at a time in their lives when they, they need to be giving more themselves, you know, and it's, it's something that would fulfill them as, as well. And so it was fun to, um, as much as I love talking about, you know, good people in bad situations, it was really fun to think of this kind of person, the most maternal, most generous, most loving, open hearted person who will do anything but date, you know, will do anything but go to lunch with a man, like God forbid. So, you know, what, what, what can we see in a person that we haven't really seen before? Because obviously, you know, there are a lot of movies about moms and Mm -hmm. there are a lot of, in theory, there, in theory, there are a lot of mother daughter movies, though. It's hard sometimes to even think of them, you know, and one of the reasons it was probably hard for this movie to get made was, um, not only is it not really a traditional, you know, mother-daughter movie, um, which was something I never wanted to do. I mean, that was something people were asking me to do, to make the Lori character just as big and mm-hmm. leave Marnie and go see Lori without her. And I just thought, well, that you're missing the point entirely. The point is to, like, see what mom's doing when you're not calling her back. Yeah. And, like, and, you know, how funny she is, but also how lonely it is and mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, I mean, that, that for me was so much more interesting. And, and if we had left her at any moment and gotten a break, I I don't think it would have felt the same, you know? Yeah. And what Lorene does, and I have seen so much growth in her as a director, uh, since, you know, she's done some television episodes for, uh, directing for new girl, uh, since she finished seeking a friend for the end of the world. I see great growth not only in her writing but in her directing. And so much of that we see conveyed with this great positivity. And in The Meddler, there is a sweet melancholy with loss and loneliness. But the entire film, you it's as if your heart wants to wear a smiley face. It is that enchanting and that charming. And so much of that is due to her visual tone, her visual grammar. And... Coming into play there is her work with her cinematographer, Brett Powlick. Now, for those of you that saw Short Term 12, Brett was a cinematographer there. And it was a very filmic, grainy uh, texture and palette. Totally different look with the meddler. It's a testament to Brett's skills, but also to Lorreen and Brett working in tandem to create this visual tonal bandwidth that mirrors the character of Marnie, 
So here's what she had to say about working with Brett and some of the technical aspects of the film. This is an absolute delight. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm so glad. Despite the fact that your mother is a meddler. Of course. Of course she is. But it's also a delight. There's some delight in that. There's some delight in that. Yeah. This, I see the growth in you as a writer. Mm. I see the growth in you exponentially as a director. Thank you. Thank you. With the cohesiveness of your storytelling and your editing process. Oh, thanks. Just absolutely Fabulous. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And bringing Brett in to do your cinematography. Yeah. That I find an interesting choice. Yeah. I was excited to work with him. I mean, I loved Short Term 12. And and, and that's just it. Short Term 12 is great, but it had that, that textured, filmic quality to it. Mm-hmm. And this, mm-hmm. it, this whole film just embraces Marnie. Yeah. And... The joy and the polish and the sun and the light. Yeah. There is not a moment of darkness. Yep. Or That's anything right. that is grainy. It is all, it's it's picture perfect. But we, I love that, you know, we got to be handheld with a character that I feel like in a lot of films you don't see in this very mm-hmm. personal sort of, sometimes you're far away from her and, and watching her like voyeuristically and sometimes it's too close to her and... It's a little claustrophobic. I mean, that that was what he and I talked about a lot, sort of using the theme of um, boundaries in terms of the frame, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and when are we breaking boundaries ourselves and when are we, uh, you know, how are we watching her break boundaries mm-hmm. and all that. So, um, but I was excited about, you know, I, I love movies like The Wrestler, you know, and I just thought, like, why not follow this woman around the Grove uh, in that way where you just are having fun with her and it's and it's lively and it's and it's um adding a little reality to something that mm-hmm. of course is very beautiful and poppy and kind of through ro- her rose-colored glasses in a mm-hmm. way you know um but that was why i was so excited to collaborate with him on that yeah know? i mean it just the cinematography is beautiful and thank it you. tells its own story thank that you. goes that visual grammar goes hand in hand I'm so glad with thank what you. you've written mm. i mean it's it's a perfect marriage thank you <laughs> And yes, indeed, it is a perfect marriage. So for anybody out there, as the meddler is going wider each week, I can't encourage you enough. The positivity and the cheerfulness and the joy that you hear in Lorene's voice, you actually you see that and you feel that unfold on screen with this film. It is, it is fabulous. And Sarandon is at the top of her game. So please, see the meddler. And now... Okay, Brian's playing with somebody on the phone. Who are, who are you playing with, Brian? What are we doing, Brian? What are we doing? Do we know what we're doing? He's on the phone. Okay. All right. So, do I have Chris and Spencer here? Yes, you do. <gasps> I, this is beyond exciting. I am so thrilled. With me right now is Chris Cordoni and Spencer Garrett, the incredible one, one of a kind. <laughs> wow. Good morning to you. Oh, guys, I am, number one, I love Stevie D, but Spencer, I mean, this is, the last time you and I actually got to do an interview was it Dances with Films for Wannabe back in 2005. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yep. Yep, I kid you not. And you are just such an incredible character actor that I think every film you've been in that I review, I always put something in the review about your performance. 
Wow. Well, thank you for that. That's very sweet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I've been I've been a little busy since Wannabe, which I'm 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 happy to happy to say. You have just been all you've been doing one offs on Castle, Hawaii Five O, Harry's Law, you know, a recurring role in Satisfaction, Aquarius, Murder in the First, and of course, then you get your little your little shots, even though they don't credit you, but I see your face there, like Air Force One, Iron Man Three. Even in Hitchcock, I mean, you are one of the most eclectic, talented character actors today. Well, I hope I was credited in Air Force One because I still because I still get I still get checks for three dollars and twenty three cents <laughs> every every day. Well, I'm now, so that was my that was my first I think that was my first movie actually. So well, and I'm so glad I'm contributing to that because every time it is on cable, I watch it. Oh, good. Yeah, it's that it's that kind of movie. It does hold up. I'm 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 proud of that one. So and now here you are working with. How about CBD with the great Chris Cordone and oh, how about this cast? I'm telling you, this cast, Chris, where where did this come from and how did you amass this incredible cast? You've got Spencer, you've got Kevin Chapman, you've got John Apria, just outstanding. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah, you know, I think it is it is um, unusual, I'll say, for a, for a, you know a smallish film to have such a deep cast. Um, and, and that was, uh, I think I, I'll actually attribute that partly to Spencer because he, um, you know, he's, he's, he's been a friend of mine for a while and he, he read the script very early on and attached very early, which when we finally got out to, to casting, having somebody who's so well known in town, you know, by, by, you know, so many actors and agents and producers and whatnot, that gave the project some credibility. I had originally written the script for for John and myself, and uh, John and I had been friends since probably since I got to town, you know, a little over ten years ago. And we we met on this commercial set. Uh, it was a commercial where we get upstaged, uh, like a father and son mafia team that gets upstaged by a chimpanzee. And it was you know, hate when that happens. <laughs> a little humiliating to say the least. And we just kept looking for opportunities to work together. And I, I, I just started working on this story little by little, and it came together as it did. And, um, and then, you know, as I said, Spencer, you know, was very instrumental in helping us just kind of get the, you know, the final push to get it made. Well, and, you know, Eric Edelstein was just on the show a couple weeks ago for another. That, that, he's somebody else who's working all the time. All the time, yeah. And Eric in the and middle. hilarious in our movie, too. Oh, my. As Carl, he is, he's a scream, slouching yeah. there in the chair with the Hawaiian shirt and the, the, the sandals. Just, and then with the, new, the news van scene just, just kills me. <laughs> kills me. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just. And then you get Hal Linden involved, too. Yeah, well, you know, how it's an interesting story. I mean, I wrote that part for a friend of mine who was, um, his name is David Graham, who was, a, who was an old agent and older agent, casting director from, from the old days, I should say. And um, David was very kind to me as, when I got to town and tried to help me. And I, I kind of wrote that part for him as somebody who was trying to help but just couldn't because time had passed him by. And we were trying to cast it with somebody who wasn't going to be that kind of shuffling, bumbling, you know, agent that we've seen on TV in a number of different movies and TV shows. And I, I heard Hal was, um, he was guest disc jockeying a show on a, on a radio station, a jazz program. And he had this, this, I recognized this voice and it was so virile and, and, you know, it just, and then when I found out that it was him, I was like, wow, he's actually perfect for the part. And 
sure enough, we we just called him, and he loved the script and the part, so he said he would do it. He's just amazing. He's just an amazing, amazing man and an amazing performer. Well, you know, I watch all of the the entire ensemble of this film, and every it is there's a seamless meld with everybody, and you don't often see that uh, in a film with this many moving parts because you've got your script is intricate, and then Chris, you undertake not just writing, not just directing, not just producing, and acting, not just one role, but two roles. I also catered the film. Oh! He, he, he actually did. He really did. Okay. Well, well, he wore a lot of hats. It was I mean, incredible. I wasn't originally intending to, to direct. That came about... I, I, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. I, I, I studied acting, and, and, I, and I was you know, well on the path of being an actor. But when we got down to, to the very kind of limited resources and time to produce the film, it, it just was clear that the best choice to direct it was me because I knew the story so well and I knew how to bring it in. So that, that came about late. And as far as the acting the two parts, I mean, that also, I, I really didn't design that to be some kind of tour de force or anything. <laughs> I really felt that it was the characters that were going to drive this film, not so much the main guy, not so much the character of Michael or Stevie, for that matter, who's not in the film that much. I really felt, because Michael's sort of a vessel in the film, he doesn't really know what's happening, so he's not really the guy driving the story. It's the characters who are around him that are. So I felt that having that strong ensemble was really the, the, the key to the casting. And I think that's also how I was able to sell off on, on having such a big role myself without, you know, without the kind of notoriety that, that a lead actor generally has. Well, and that's where it's so important to have you in there, Spencer, and Kevin Chapman and John, the three, uh, the three of you in particular, surrounding the character of Stevie and the character of Michael. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the, the strength in there, which you buttress the story, just, it, I mean, you, you believe every minute what is going on, that Michael is, is an actor that looks like this, you know, right. quote-unquote mobster son, um, and he's filling in for him because son did something bad, dad's trying to clean it up. And I got to say, you as the attorney, Spencer, are just a, a, a kick in the ass. Well, I've, uh, you may have noticed I've, I've kind of, I've played a couple of attorneys in my day. Just a few, so, just a few. Uh, yeah, I, I've, uh, that was probably my 837th lawyer, but, um, but not, you know, but, but it was really just the story that attracted me. I mean, I read Chris's script a few years ago, and as soon as I read it, I said, this is shootable. I said, this is makeable as is now, and I don't know how many changes you made to it since I read it, but, I mean, it was, it was ready, to, ready to start filming, so, and it was a fun part, and I was, you know, I was honored that he asked me to be, uh, you know, to climb on board at the very beginning, and, um, I mean, the guy was a lawyer, yeah, but, you know, he was a lot of other things. I think more, his, his main job in the movie was being, you know, this protective dad, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, you know to, to, to Tori's character. And that's something um, we haven't seen from you before. Uh, that's kind of true. That's kind of true. You know, I'm usually, I'm usually sort of. A, there's a lot of a lot of bad guys. A lot of guys that are, you know, have a little bit of an edge to them. But uh, this was this was really more about being the protective, the protective dad. So it was a, it was a, a nice role to undertake. And I mean, I think you did beautifully with that. I was watching you, and I kept hearing my own dad's voice in my head. <laughs> you know, was the kind of things that a father does say and do with his daughter. 
Well, you know, he sees her getting involved with this with this guy, and you know, he doesn't know that Stevie is Michael, and Michael is Stevie, and you know, it's it's so he sees he sees her getting involved with this particular guy who you know who's known to be uh, you know a bit on the shady side, and um, you know, so he's he's wary, and of course his uh, you know of course his feathers are going to get ruffled, and of course he's going to be protective, and. So uh, it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty easy to play. I don't have kids myself, but I could certainly imagine if I was in that situation that I would be, I'd probably feel the same way if mm-hmm. my kid was getting involved with a guy that, you know, had some, uh, you know, had some darkness and, you know, shady dealings, then it'd be pretty easy to, uh, you know, to, for the, for the, for the Papa Bear, uh, you know, <laughs> instincts to come out. <laughs> so I want to ask you, Chris. You have so many elements incorporated in the script. You hark, you, you touch on, uh, you know, the mob, the mob bosses in Philly and Atlantic City. And I'm from Philly, so I know that whole scene really, really right. well. So, and, you know, but then you've got the, the big construction magnet. I don't know if you tapped without mentioning any company names, but there was back in the eighties a huge, 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 you know, press coverage and media event with a company that started doing the subway construction that had ties similar to what Angelo DeMarco does. So I don't know how much of this... Are you implying that construction companies might potentially have ties to the mob? That's outrageous. Maybe. That's an outrageous claim. Maybe. You know. (laughs) But, you know, you have all these touchstones that people can latch on to. Did this just come to you naturally, or did you go digging or doing any kind of research to tie things in? Chris is actually in the mob. <laughs> oh, oh, well, okay. That's that... out of the bag now. Sorry. Sorry, that... Chris. Well, then well, you shouldn't have any so trouble I, getting I financing. Didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to write about the mafia. I didn't want to write about the entertainment industry. They're obviously both part of the script, and that was maybe because I just couldn't help myself. And but... they're very similar, actually. <laughs> And they are very, they are very similar. All I need is a politician. But you were also trying to avoid the cliche of the typical mm-hmm. mob movie or the typical exactly. Hollywood fish out of water exactly. movie. You know? I mean, if you watch the whole movie, you realize it's not really a mob movie no. at all. Um, it just has some of these elements in there. Part of that also, I think, was a nod to John, who um, and, and Bobby Costanzo too, who jokes about it too. Um, um, he, he plays the, the construction guy from AC, and you know, he, he I mean. He, he, if you are Italian and you are of a certain age, you, you, you've been asked to play these guys a lot. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that's happened to me so much, but um, I, I, you know, I did want to sort of nod to that. I also didn't want John to sort of be, you know, his character to be sort of formally in in any way. I wanted him to be one of those guys connected. And there are people like that. There are even people like that probably in, in L.A. So I didn't – I had a couple of people in mind. I won't say who they are because I don't want them to <laughs> – I'm accusing them of being, um, you know, connected to to organized crime, but uh, I wanted him to have that veneer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think as a, as a white Irish guy from Santa Monica, I've probably played more more mob guys than Chris has. I think you have, Spencer. I think yeah. you have. But mostly, I wanted I wanted to handle. I, I wanted a film that I thought people would understand on some level, and these and these are characters that that we've seen before. And people will understand them, I think, and latch on to them. We, we kind of like this genre. I just wanted it to be, I wanted it to go in a different direction. I wanted, to, I wanted it to have an authentic point of view about L.A., about fathers and sons. And I felt that 
if I could bring that out as the writer, then then I think we would have something that, that was different. Mm-hmm. Well, and what you also do is you get, with your locations, you get a really great cross-section of different areas of Los Angeles. I recognize some of the places, you know, up there on San Vicente Boulevard at, um, you know, the law, yeah. the law offices. So was Dolce it... Dolce Vita Restaurant, which is a classic, you know, classic uh, Italian place in Beverly Hills. Uh, which yeah. is a very well-known restaurant. It's not easy. It's not easy to shoot in L.A. Um, you know anymore, uh, unless you unless you have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We we're lucky. We were gifted a few very good locations, like La Dolce Vita. Um, the the art museum was gifted to us. That's in Pasadena, the Pasadena Museum mm-hmm. of California Art. Um, and then we just we, we we for the most part shot just in places where you, where you can't get into trouble. Uh, there were a few places we had to pay for, um, like the, the, the residence in, in the hills. We had to pay for that. And, and um, there's a few things we had to steal, quite, quite frankly. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> I think Don't did, tell anybody. <laughs> I think we did a pretty good job. You know, I had to find places that looked, like, that looked like Las Vegas. I had to find places that looked like they could have been a hotel in Beverly Hills. And you know, those aren't easy places to get. No, I mean, that's one thing that really struck me, because you also didn't go to the typical locations. You really, I think that was also part of the fact that we couldn't afford it and and that I wanted it to look a little bit different. I wanted to show a different side of L.A. that that the people who live here might see, not people who visit here. It was true independent filmmaking at its most elemental, because you have to, like, you know, like Chris said, you have to steal locations. Sometimes you get lucky and you get gifted locations, but a lot of times you're doing it guerrilla style. And sometimes when you're doing the guerrilla style or, you know, grabbing locations here and there that, that, you know, you don't necessarily have permits for, those are the ones that usually work out the best, you know, in the finished product because you find these happy accidents that happen and you end up in a location that you wouldn't normally have expected and it turns out great. So, um, you know, this was, you know, this was obviously a low-budget film, but it, it every everything that uh, everything that Chris found ended up on the screen in terms of you know production value and production mm-hmm. quality. It, it looks it looks like a higher budget film than it really is, which is a, a testament to Chris and you know and this great little team that he put together. Yeah, our DP Paul McElvain is is one of the most sought after uh, lighting technicians in town. So he really knew how to set this thing up. To yeah, I mean, it's visually, your visual tone is absolutely beautiful. Paul did, did an amazing job. And as, as Spencer just said, the production values on here belie a, yeah. as I call them, low-budget, no-budget films. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, just gorgeous. Now, the pre, was the premiere at Newport Beach Film Festival? The West Coast premiere. We had our, we had our premiere. Our, the first festival that we played in was in Sedona, the Sedona International Festival. And that's, that's a film that we, uh, the festival that we also won, um, uh, very fortunately, and that, as well so that you was should. our official world premiere. And then we then we played in Sarasota, and we're very well received there. And then the last festival was Newport, which which was our West Coast premiere. I mean, it's just, I mean, I just I think the film is fabulously done, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank it you is, so much. It's very entertaining. That means a lot. You know, I mean, it's and I I'm such a huge fan of. You know, mafia films and comedies, and you don't see that many, you know. So to see something like this, it is so well thought out, well constructed, well written, and with high production values. It's a treat. We're trying to spread the word and get get it out there to the people so they can... uh 
so they can dig it as much as you do. So now, uh, do you have any more festivals coming up or any kind of distribution deals, digital? We're we talking to distributors right now, and uh, we, have a, we have a very good um, sales agent who's behind the film and thinks, thinks big things of the film. Another connection to Spencer. Uh, they repped the film Spencer was in called Below the Beltway a few years back, which um, had another great cast and, and, and did very well, uh, both in festivals and, and in distribution. So um, it's just a matter, it's just a very difficult market right now because there's, there's, a, lot of, um, there's a lot of platforms. They're not mm-hmm. all, you know, they, they don't all bring tremendous visibility, um, but there's a lot of platforms. There's also a lot of content. It's, it's an unusual time that, that anyone can make a film because of the technology right now. Um, that doesn't mean they're all necessarily making good films or highly entertaining or highly... <laughs> Tell you know. me about it. <laughs> but, yeah. but, it's also, but it's also a good thing that there is so much access to because the technology is so cheap that yeah. it's, it's encouraging a lot more younger filmmakers to you know, get out there with their, whether it's an iPhone or a Red or whatever, mm-hmm. to go out there and be creative and make films. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, some of them turn out great and some of them don't turn out so great, but at least it's encouraging people. I mean, now with, you know, with smartphones and, and the new technology that changes all the time, I mean, you know, everybody's a videographer, everybody's a photographer, mm-hmm. everybody's, you know, uh, whether, you know, we live in this sort of Instagram, Twitter age now and everybody's taking selfies of themselves and putting up pictures. But every once in a while, you see something that comes through and you go, oh, that guy's got a good eye. You know, mm-hmm. that guy's got an interesting visual style. And I think it does lend itself to, you know, people expressing themselves creatively, uh, you know, through, you know, through, through the visual arts. I think it's, uh, I think it's a good thing. Hey, you know, let me ask you, Spencer, because you have, you have seen the industry change so much over the course of time that you have been acting. Do you is it helping or hindering with so many platforms out there and this you know inundation of part uh, pardon the pun wannabe filmmakers? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know I don't know I, I think I think in in a sense for actors it's a it's a good thing because there is so much content out there and there are so many platforms there's. You know, thanks to Netflix and House of Cards, I think it sort of broke the mold wide open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you know, you've got all these all of these streaming platforms now with Hulu and Netflix and Amazon, and everybody's getting in on the act. So it's creating a lot more employment opportunities for actors. Mm-hmm. I think is good, and I think probably the flip side of that coin is that there is so much content. There's such a, a, a an enormous amount of Content. There's almost too much television out there now. There's yeah. almost too many things. Almost too many things to watch. Um, but it's at the end of the day. I think for me, it's 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 a good thing because there's it's giving it's giving a lot of filmmakers an opportunity to express themselves. And uh, so if you hear about a show, whether it's Penny Dreadful on Showtime or whatever, is you know, some you've got to seek out these shows. Mm-hmm. And find them. Like I just got turned onto a show called Rectify that's on, I think, on Netflix that people were sort of muttering about. I was like, wow, this is really good. You have to find them, but then you 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 see these wonderful actors getting to do really great, uh, you know, great things. So I think it's I think it's a good thing, um, giving giving filmmakers more opportunities. So now, what's next for both of you, Chris? Do you, are you working on another project now? Are you going to sit back and see how this plays out? Well, um, you know, a little, a little bit of both, I guess. I, I have, um, 
I have two more projects that I'd like to to get you know into development, and they're um, I'd say one is is ready to go if any if you know if we had the right you know the right people around it, and the other one I'm I'm still working on. Um, it's uh, I, I'm I'm interested in this kind of noirish world, and they both are kind of. Um, uh, in that world as well, one is like a has sort of a surfing um, uh, storyline to it, although I don't surf. <laughs> um, but it's, it's sort of a I call it a surfing noir thriller. And another one is uh, about a, about a private eye um, in Los Angeles in the early '70s. Um, and uh, a lot will depend on you know how this movie gets you know re- reviewed and received, mm-hmm. how it gets seen, because it's just very difficult to. To get you know get films done or into development if if you don't have that kind of reputation so um, that's really what I'm hoping for and, and of course if the phone rings and somebody wants to hire me for something I'm I'm uh, I'm available <laughs> and what about for you I hear Spencer that internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes hear that everybody yes. yes. And what do you have coming up, Spencer? Uh, I just finished uh, season two of Aquarius, this mm-hmm. uh, kind of dark, twisted little show on uh, NBC with David Duchovny oh, and uh, Charles Manson. In the it's 70s. fabulous. Um, we just finished up season two of that. And then uh, next week I've got this uh, film called All the Way with Brian Cranston and, a, and an incredible cast on HBO uh, about LBJ and the civil rights movement with Anthony Mackie and, Alice, and Melissa Leo and... Brad Whitford, so that's uh, that's coming out in a couple of weeks, and uh, somebody to be out there beating the drum for that. So, oh my God! Well, guys, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I mean, this has been a real treat, Spencer. I don't want to go eleven years and not talk to you again. Yeah, let's let's not let's <laughs> not listen. Any any uh, any Chicago Med fans out there? You know, Tori De, Tori DeVito fans. Uh, uh, mob movie fans, Hollywood movie fans, uh, you know, when you hear about our movie out there, uh, find it and, uh, you know, if hopefully everybody will love it as much as you did and, uh, and as much as we did making it. Well, you know, and this show will start rebroadcasting later this afternoon. It'll be on iTunes tomorrow. And video of the show intercut with some beautiful stills from the film. Oh, terrific! Will be on right? will be on uh, YouTube and uh, my website by the end of the week. And for whatever reason, there's some outlet in China that that actually embeds my entire show on their site. So you'll be in China too. Right on! Right, I'm big in that's, China. That's where it's <laughs> huge in China. That's where hey. it's <laughs> Yo, guys, thank you again so much, and I thank hope you. you'll both thank come you back. So much. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye bye. And that was Chris Cordone and Spencer Garrett talking about Stevie D. And uh, you'll hear more about that later this week. But right now, I am thrilled to welcome one of the most interesting filmmakers to come around in a while, Dominic Rodriguez. Hi, Dominic. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. I've never seen a documentary like Fursonas. That is an amazing thing to hear. (laughs) This, I didn't know what to expect. I knew a little bit about furries thanks to a CSI episode some years ago. Oh, yeah, that's the infamous uh, CSI episode. Yes, Fur and Loathing. And then there have been references on other, uh, you know, 30 Rock did something, Entourage did something a number of years ago. So, But to actually see your approach to this world and to this, this culture... Fascinating. What is it 
that led you, that made you get up one day and say, I think I want to make a documentary about this? <laughs> uh, it was definitely not like a one day thing. It was just like a continual, like, somebody should make a documentary about this. I don't want to do it because I don't want to touch this with a ton of film. This is way too complicated. Um, but then, you know, it just was like kind of following me and nobody else was doing it. And uh, Pittsburgh is where I live, and that's where the largest ferry convention in the world is. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just, it kind of felt like it was meant to be. Now, how did you approach, because this, this is your first film of any kind, or just first documentary? I mean, first documentary, I mean, I went to film school and I did shorts and stuff, but this is definitely the first thing that feels real. Mm-hmm. So how did you approach this? Did you develop a, th- a theme from the start, or did you start doing interviews and then in the editing room start seeing a theme and a, con- and a construction developing? It was very, the word I use is organic because it was just like, I didn't know what I was doing for like 90% of this, you know, it was just me trying to, the the big thing is that I wanted it to be real and I didn't want it to be, you know, a PR film, but I didn't want it to be exploitative. I just wanted it to kind of be sympathetic. Um, And so I didn't want to impose a narrative on it that I thought didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, it was just interviews, you know, just trying to get people to open up with me and just talk just so I could get to really know who these people were. Um, but then eventually, you know, it's like two years later and there's really no story and it's us trying to figure this thing out. Um, and I was kind of fine with it being just this plotless, weird thing. Um, but then eventually a, a story did take shape um, and it was kind of an amazing story. So that was kind of luck, kind of just from looking at it for long enough. Um, what, was, what was the linchpin that gave you the story, the, uh, the story thread? I have to wonder and think it might have been Boomer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a, a combination of Boomer, definitely, um, the, the whole kind of tension with how furries are portrayed in the media with, like, authority figures in the fandom. And then also sort of, even though it's not a huge part of the movie, um, kind of my own presence mm-hmm. uh, was a turning point as well because I didn't want to necessarily be in the film, even though I'm a furry, I just... I was really hung up on this not being my story, mm-hmm. um, but it kind of was unavoidable. You know, in order to be honest, I had to kind of show a little bit of that part of myself as well. Mm-hmm. So how did you go about finding the individuals to interview? It was like the first, in the beginning, I just sent hundreds of messages out to um, people that had costumes. So not every city has a fursuit. But I wanted to talk to first suitors because um, it just showed that they were passionate, that they wanted to take that extra step. And um, I don't know, it, it, just, it was cinematic and it's something that I'm interested in. Um, so basically whoever would get back to me, it was almost a convenience. You know, I didn't know a ton about their lives. Um, it was just sort of like if they were passionate and wanted to talk to me and I could drive to them, um, then I would make an effort to go see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the second half, there were sort of some holes in the story that I, like, thought out specific people in order to kind of flesh out that story. So, like, people like Shoe Fox and Varka and Uncle Kage, those were people that I specifically was looking for in order to kind of complete what we had started. Well, the Uncle Kage deal sequences are absolutely mind-boggling. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can't, I can't tell if he supports the furry fandom or if he's against it because he's so vitriolic and polarizing. Yeah, he's definitely a very polarizing figure in the community. Everybody has an opinion, even if your opinion is that you don't care, but everybody 
more or less knows about him and they fight about what he stands for, definitely. <laughs> well, and that comes through loud and clear as you incorporate some of his wine streams uh, into into the documentary. Would he not agree to be interviewed for this? Yeah, well, we couldn't agree on terms, basically. You know, so he would be in it if he could see the finished film and recommend changes. And then I, you know, if I don't do those changes, then he gets to pull himself out. And it was just, it was, you know, it kind of amounted to an editorial amount of control. Uh, so that was something that wouldn't fly for me. Um, just sort of the movie so much about the fandom and the movie are both about me expressing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that was just something that I couldn't express. So now, for people that that aren't uh, familiar with the furry with the furry community or, or the furry fandom, how would you describe it to people being introduced as the f- f- first time? Yeah, um, like so, like the the most all encompassing definition that you can say is that people that are fascinated by anthropomorphic animals, so animals with human characteristics, cartoon animals, but that interest. Um, the reason why I think that. That definition for me doesn't really do it justice is because there's so much more to it um, than just this kind of brand of interest. It's like there's an, it's an identity for a lot of people, and it's this very tightly knit community. Um, and there's just really interesting things about it, like the fact that everybody kind of seems to know everybody in this culture, even though there's like thousands of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really easy to kind of, I don't know, get like a reputation because you're creating characters, and that's just there's such an online presence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really cool because you can make friends very quickly. You can have the drama and to spread really quickly as well. I mean, it, it, I just I find the information that you were imparting and the different people that you were speaking with, you know, it's it's like from all walks of life. But something that I find really charming is that, you know, a lot of a lot of the furries. You know, it's it's like a cosplay. It's like, you know, going to Comic-Con in a cosplay. And little kids just think, you know, it's so cute because you've got you've got adults wearing looking like these adorable storybook characters. Yeah, Woodland creatures. Is that is is that more or less the prevalent image that the that the 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 furry fandom tries to portray? Yeah, it's it's just so complicated because it's something different to everybody involved. Um, and so I think that there's, there's kind of an effort to downplay how much it means to a lot of people and mm-hmm. sort of make it more of a kind of, just sort of a, like a, a hobby. And for a lot of people, it is just a hobby. Um, but I think it's just really, really, really important uh, to the people that are in it in a way that's almost hard to describe. Um, but, and then I think also... People look at it, and I think it looks like Disneyland, and I think that's why when you start talking about things like sexuality and stuff like that, it, it can freak people out because they just don't know what to do with them. Um, but it's really not that mm-hmm. scary. It's just individual people with their different interests. Mm-hmm. So now, what was the biggest learning curve for you? Having gone to film school, having made short films, and now you jump into this feature-length documentary. Mm-hmm. What, was, it, what, was, what, was the learning, what was the learning curve for you? Uh, definitely, like, when I think about that, it's like, I, I always love just kind of editing and making movies, and I love talking to people and everything, but I guess, sort of like, I guess, just the fact that it's real people's lives that you're stepping into, mm-hmm. um, and it's one thing to think about, oh, this would be good for a movie, or this would be a really good scene, but just the fact that I'm always kind of having to check myself and remind myself that, like, 
these are real people, um, and they all have like a stake in this, and it's it's just I get I don't know I almost get like emotional when I think about it because it's like it's they're they're not like just characters you know they're they're human beings and it's it's my responsibility to kind of like do justice for them but then also kind of say what I want to say and not you know be too. I can't like compromise, you know. So it's just kind of a weird balancing act, um, mm-hmm. and I still don't really know how to do it. In <laughs> figuring it out. Now, how does that impact you when you get in the editing room? Does that make it more difficult when you're editing? Um, yeah, it's, I think test screenings were very beneficial because I think when you're in the editing room, you kind of have to just put on the filmmaker hat and think like, well, you know, how is this all going to function together as a narrative? And, like, you know, you set something up and then you pay it off and things like that. And then it, it really was very helpful to start showing it to people and get other perspectives on, on it because it's, you can almost get sort of blind. And you can, like, artistically justify anything, mm-hmm. you know. So I think, for instance, the film makes no secret of the fact that we disagree with Uncle Kage and his media policy. Um, and we kind of we toned it back a little bit because originally I was much more uh, ruthless <laughs> in how much I disagreed with him. <laughs> well, while you were laughing at him, that was good. <laughs> I'm glad you like that. Not everybody likes that. <laughs> I, I like it. I liked it because it w- it's you laughing, balance, it was a great counter to the vitriol mm-hmm. and the profanity that was coming out of his mouth. Yeah, and that's just, I couldn't believe that he said it. I mean, it was just 100% genuine. That was yeah. It, 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 there are moments of great disbelief when you actually hear somebody talking like that about a group that he professes to love and champion. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, you really raise some interesting, you know, interesting discussion and interesting, and, dis, and people are seen in a very different light. Um, because it, they definitely, some of them are definitely not being seen the way they think they're being seen. And that's a, te- I mean, that's, that's a testament to you, you know, for bringing that out within the editing and the construct of the film. So now, how- I just like appreciate so much how like this is coming across and like ideas are actually like finding their way to, especially non-core audiences. Because I think that, like, a lot of furries are just so skeptical of what people who aren't furries are going to think. Like, they think they're just going to see one thing, and then they're going to judge the entire community by this one thing. And I just like to give people more credit than that. And I can just tell from the interviews that I do that people are, they're understanding that it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Oh, that definitely, you definitely get that part across from beginning to end. There is no doubt that the structure within the furry world is very complicated. But now, when did you know that the film, were you satisfied with the film after all of your test screenings and re-edits? How long was that process before you then said, okay, it's done. I'm going to throw it out there on the festival circuit. I remember like a year before it was like actually done. I had that moment where I was just like, it's done. No more. It's been three years. I can't take it anymore. This is it. If people don't like it, that's too bad. This is it. (laughs) Um, and then that was right when we were kind of showing it to the production studio Animal, um, and they were just kind of, you know, they, they let us use their facilities, um, but they weren't really like our official production studio yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I remember I showed it to like the executive, who's not executive producer, Danny, and then he's the, um, he's the like, story consultant. And 
they were just like, this is so almost good. Like, <laughs> for like one more year, then you'd actually have a movie. And like, I, from the moment they said that, I knew that they were right. And I knew that we were, we were finally getting somewhere and it, they were just more holes that needed to be kind of filled in and fleshed out and more questions that needed to be answered. Um, so a year later, you know, I still think that the film is, it's, it's just how I feel, you know, and I think that that's, it, it felt like it was honest and it felt like other people were understanding it. And eventually you just got to stop on four years, felt like so long enough to <laughs> So now, how did you feel? Was what was your first festival that the film got into? Was it Slam Dance? It was Slam Dance, yeah. So, how excited were you, number one, when you, your film was actually accepted into Slam Dance? But then you also won the Spirit of Slam Dance Award. Yeah, uh, I couldn't believe it. Um, I mean, it's just the kind of thing. Again, working on something like this for so long, I had to be like ready for people to not not really care about it and won't like it or whatever because I just had to I had to be at peace when I was and so the fact that it's sort of being acknowledged um, and understood and appreciated is just like so now what did you in the process of making personas what did you learn about yourself, Dominic? It was very, like, it was a process of self-discovery for me over the course of making the film because when I started it, I didn't identify as a furry, you know. I, I'd been into this stuff kind of secretly for a long time, and I'd been looking at it for a long time, but it wasn't something that was, like, an active part of my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I worked more on the movie, I got more into the community, and now it's, it's completely integrated with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a weird, it's just weird that this used to be the thing that nobody knew me, that, that nobody knew about me, and now it's the thing that I'm known for. So it's just been like a crazy sort of reversal in the last couple of years. Um, and so I've just become a lot more comfortable sort of with who I am and what I'm into, and is this, yeah, so that's, a, that's been a, a, it's a very special film to me, and I'm, I'm not sure how I will ever work on something as personal as this again. So now, do you have anything else in the pipeline that you're working on, or are you just taking a step back now? And Because I know Fursonas is available on iTunes tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So will you be actively you know, promoting this? Are you working on a new project? What's next for Dominic Rodriguez? Mm-hmm. So right now I've been trying to get out to more furry conventions and the cool thing is like, I feel like the community outreach is like a big part of this process. So it's important that I make an appearance at a lot of these events and, sort of, and do Q&A and talk about it because it be supposed to be about starting a conversation. Um, so I'm not quite ready to like let it go yet um, because <laughs> I think that like the conversation has just started and I think I need to be there at least in the beginning. And then after that I can kind of let it go and people do with it what they want. Um, but I, I want to keep doing documentary work and, um, you know, put myself into both furry and non-furry projects after this. <laughs> Do you see yourself stepping into narratives at all? Love that. I mean, it's the kind of thing where that was what I originally wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do prefer documentary work because it feels like I don't always know the answer for, like, what to tell an actor or how to... I, I just... But, like, with, with director, with uh, documentaries, I always have questions, like I never run out of questions. And so I'm like, that curiosity is something that I think helps me uh, on that and more. 
Well, so it's just on iTunes tomorrow. Any Is expanding anywhere else, any other kind of VOD platform or Hulu or Netflix or anything? It should be expanding after that to um, Amazon and Xbox and Google Play and Microsoft. Uh, so that's really cool. Fabulous. Well, Dominic, thank you so much for joining me on Behind the Lens today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so Oh, this is, you know, again, a very a very unique, very interesting documentary. And I, I, for one, can't wait to see what you come up with for your for an encore. Thank you so much for saying that. Thank you again for having me. Oh, my pleasure, Dominic. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Dominic Rodriguez, writer and director of Fursonas, available on iTunes tomorrow. We are going to take, even though we're almost near the end of the show, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then come back and do a sign-off. So just sit tight, and we'll be right back. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. We are almost out of time. Uh, But very quickly to recap here, be on the lookout for Stevie D, written, directed, produced, and starring Chris Cordon, and a cast of an incredible, incredible cast of character actors and stars that you have seen on TV and film for years, including Spencer Garrett, who was also with us, and Kevin Chapman, Hal Linden, John Apria, who has been in almost every mob movie and TV show known to mankind, uh, in addition to Tori DeVito, who is the female love interest in the film. She gets to shine. And also, coming out on iTunes tomorrow is Fursonas, interesting documentary by Dominic Rodriguez. And that's going to be all the time we have today. Next week, I think we're just going to, we're going to have a lot of interview excerpts, including part of my exclusive with Whit Stillman, who has written one of the, one of the most fascinating uh, screenplays in a while, Love and Friendship, based on Jane Austen's Lady Susan and starring Kate Beckinsale. Um, I sat down with him the other day and... Fabulous and fascinating and fun. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias, Behind the Lens.